Um, before I jump into it, uh, just uh, if you guys wouldn't mind bowing your heads to pray with me, I'm just going to pray really quick. Uh, Lord, we thank you for who you are. I just pray, God, that, you're, uh, that you make your face known um, in this word today, that you be with me and that you open up hearts and minds um, to see and appreciate and love who you are. God, I pray that you help to apply this to our lives. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as Sarah was saying, um, if you are, if you've been here a long time, that's great. We are so glad you're here. If you're new, we are also so glad that you're here. We want to invite you into this family here at uh, True Life Church. And so we're, we're, we've been preaching through First Timothy. Oh, there was a sneak peek there. Did you see that? We've been preaching through First Timothy and through our series called Stronger. And as I was thinking about family, you know, we're going to be talking about that in our passage today. Family, this idea of family, so important. We're all a part of a family. And whether, when you hear the word family, you think about your biological family or your, your Harley gang or your sports team or your whatever, we all have different kind of spheres that we experience family in. It is unavoidable for us. And now culture, obviously, even though families in the United States have been shifting, what it looks like as a family has been shifting over time, it's still as important as ever. I was looking up the top 10 most watched shows of 2018, which is always an interesting exercise. And, uh, you know, the majority of them, the setting in which they occur or happen is within a family setting, whether that's Big Bang Theory or Roseanne, which was number one. But perhaps the most uh, family-centered show of 2018 was This Is Us. This is like a GQ photo of This Is Us, which I thought was funny. But it shouldn't be a GQ photo because This Is Us is perhaps the saddest show in the long, sad history of sad shows. Um, It's just really sad. Joni and I only made it through probably a season and a half, and we cried through every single episode. And the fact that it's number four uh, in 2018 kind of blows my mind because of how sad it is. In fact, I would say to Joni, you know, at the beginning, we would say, hey, babe, you want to watch This Is Us tonight? And then maybe a month in, we started saying, hey, babe, do you want to weep tonight? Because that's, uh, that's what This Is Us does. And so we, instead of pulling out a pint of ice cream, we pulled out a quart of ice cream to make ourselves feel better. (laughs) Just kidding. Those of you who know me know that I don't eat ice cream. The only thing I hate quarts of is arugula. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so anyway, I'm sitting there with my bowl of arugula, and Joni's sitting there with her bowl of ice cream. And, you know, one of the things that This Is Us shows so well is how a family, like they go through so much suffering in this show, right? But one of the things that this family does is they come alongside each other, and they care for one another, and they serve for one another in difficulty. That's one of the things that... This is, I guess, makes this as a special as we all see that, and it warms our hearts right after you finish weeping, right? And, but, you know, here's the thing. Like, the way that the This Is Us family cares for one another and serves one another is different than other families, right? I mean, if you watch The Sopranos, the way that they care for one another is going to be different than the way that this suburb family does, right? And, and, and you know, look, growing up, we know this growing up. Like, when you went, uh, you know, you had a bunch of friends, you're going over to your friend's house, and then you see the way that that family treats and cares for one another. So different the way your family does, right? Maybe you didn't come from a yelling family. But then you go over to your friend's house and you see people yelling at each other. 
And you're like, oh, wow, this is different. This is not uh, my experience growing up. And a bunch of other things, right? Like whether it's yell or not yell. Maybe you did come from the yelling family, and then you all of a sudden go to a house where there's both parents are present, and everyone's sitting down at the dinner table with the American average of 2.5 kids, and everybody's treating each other great. And it's just kind of like it's different, and you see something, you observe something that's different than perhaps what you experience. And, you know, money, some families, like when I was growing up in high school, um, there was a bunch of really wealthy families at my high school of tech CEOs and stuff, and so they're buying their kids like Mustangs. And I remember my phys physics teacher was so mad about all the cars that were in the student parking lot, and he'd always like talk about it. And then there's other families, right, where you know they get the, their their son or daughter gets their driver's license, and and then they say, okay, we're going on Craigslist and we're getting you a bike and you're paying for half of it because my father who didn't get a first car and he paid for it himself and his father before him, you know, there's, whether it's that kind of looseness with money or, or that tightness or that, you know, austerity, families care for one another differently, so differently. Whether it's strict or easy, some families like, hey, our house is our castle. Our house is our castle and, and nobody, you know, this is the family. Nobody kind of gets in between us. I mean, th there's a specialness here that nobody else can even approach. Other families, maybe there's all kinds of people living there. There's all kinds of people coming in and out. So many different ways that families treat one another. And how much does this matter for us, right? I mean, this matters for us so much the way that the decisions that we make as we approach this question of how should a family care for one another? Because think about how that affects the thriving of your family, the decisions that you make in that, whether that's a biological family or other families, your roommates, whatever, situ whatever situation you find yourself in. Think about how much that matters to the, to the I guess, the ambiance and the culture of the household and the way that it just kind of develops people. I mean, if you're a parent and you have kids, 20 years from now, what will the friends of your kids say when they grow up and they think back to when they came over to your house? And they say, maybe they say, you know, I came from a really brutal family situation, but I remember when I went to their house and I got to observe the way that a family cared for one another. And, you know, I'm going to, that's kind of going to be my North Star because of what I saw there or the opposite. It's so critical as we come to this question of how should a family care for each other? And look, the Bible in our passage today, 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 through 16, we're going to be in the CSB talks about this. How should family care for one another? In fact, it uses a very specific example of a type of member in the family of God that Paul uses and, and talks through about how they should care, the church should care for them. And, <clears throat> you know, Paul's writing to Timothy, as a reminder, young pastor in the city of Ephesus, who, and he's given him instructions on how the church is to do something here. So if you wouldn't mind opening your Bibles with me, and we're just going to read through it uh, right here. This is 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 through 16. Don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger sisters, or younger women as sisters with all purity. Support widows who are genuinely in need. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness toward their own family first, and to repay their parents, for this pleases God. The widow who is truly in need and left all alone has put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. So this is just, you know, remember, Paul's writing to a specific context here, and, and some of these widows were destitute, and they didn't have family to take care for them. And, 
And so in this situation Paul's talking about, those widows, all they can do is rely on God. And you can see that in their lives. Um, and then it goes on. However, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command this also so that they will be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow is to be enrolled on the list for support unless she is at least 60 years old, has been the wife of one husband, and is well known for good works. That is, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when they are drawn away from Christ by their desire, they want to marry and will therefore receive condemnation because they have renounced their original pledge. Now, just to comment on this, the commentators are kind of mixed on what this is referring to, but it's probably one of two things. The first being is sometimes widows would pledge themselves to the service of the church, and they kind of would make a vow. And it, it could have been that some were basically going back on that vow and abandoning that. Or the other option is, as we've seen in some of Kayla's previous sermons, that there was false teachers in the community, people that weren't Christians in the community, and the widows were abandoning the church and following them, marrying them, that kind of thing. So it's one of those two things. That's what it's talking about, though, when they're receiving condemnation and renouncing their original pledge. So then it goes on. At the same time, they also learn to be idle, going from house to house. They are not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things that they shouldn't say. Therefore, I want younger women to marry, have children, manage their households, and give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us. So pause there. If before you go on and you're thinking to yourself, well, I have to have Mary and have kids? Okay. Um, just remember, there's other parts in the Bible, especially one of Paul's other letters in 1 Corinthians, where he actually encourages some men and women to stay single. And so it's just kind of dependent on the context, right? Like, your value as a woman is not built into having children. And we could see that in other parts of the Bible. But for this context, this is what Paul is encouraging the younger widows in particular to do there. Um, uh, have children, manage their own households, and give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us. For some have already turned away to follow Satan. If any believing woman has widows in her family, let her help them. Let the church not be burdened so that it can help widows in genuine need. Now, um, before we kind of begin looking at what God has said here, I just want to I want to make a couple comments about the way that we approach the Bible. Because maybe as you read through this and you saw this, you're thinking to yourself, well, well, that's dandy, Adam. I don't really know any widows. So am I just going to cross my legs here and chill? And which is like, a, you know, an understandable way to kind of look at that and see this. But this presents a great opportunity for us to, to look at how we're supposed to come to the word of God. Okay, how do we interpret the Bible? Because there's lots of things in these kind of cultural gaps that kind of might confuse us. So here's the thing. Here's the first thing that matters. It's this thing called authorial intent. What did the author, who is he writing to, specific context, reason, culture, all of that, the authorial intent, what was he actually saying to the people he was writing to? And look, here's why this matters. Like, I mean, we even know this in real life, right? Like if I'm in the car with my wife and I'm like, hey, babe, where do you want to go to dinner tonight? And she says, oh, you know, babe, let's go get Thai food. And I go, hmm, Thai. You know, I hear you saying that you want to get Thai food, but, you know, for me, you know, Thai food's your favorite. And what's my favorite? Mexican. Hey, babe, you want to go get Mexican? She's going to look at me and be like, what? 
and let out the biggest sigh that any wife has ever heard, right? In that circumstance, we know how insane it is for me to listen to what she's saying, what's her intent, what does she actually mean, and to just run off with what I think it means or what I care about, what I you know, want to interpret it, right? But that's crazy, right? And it's the same thing to do that with the scriptures. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, something happened. And we care about what that was. We, this man changed the world. And look, the New Testament, the, one, the books that made it into the New Testament, mostly made it in because of this thing called apostolic authority, which is basically these are the people who walked with Jesus. They knew what he said, what he did. And we, 2,000 years later, care about that message. We care about what happened then. Not just the way we look at like an abstract art piece and be like, what does this evoke in my mind, right? But like application's a different thing, and we're going to get to that. So we go from authorial intent, then we move to application. Look, 2 Timothy, the next book, it says actually in chapter 3 that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's the word of God. It says it's profitable. All scripture is profitable for teaching, rebuke, and training in all righteousness. Hebrews 4 says it this way. The word of God is alive and active Sharper than any two-edged sword, it says. And then it says that it's able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is how we approach the word of God. And so we move from this authorial intent. What did he say? What was Paul meaning to say? What was he communicating to Timothy? Which can be hard to figure out. But then we move to, okay, what's the significance for us? What is the application to our life? What is the principle that he's saying here? If it maybe isn't directly applicable in some way, maybe some of you don't know widows, some of, some of you do. What is the principle that we distill, right? So this is how we come to the Bible. And, you know, as we just read this passage, the first question that we need to ask ourselves as it relates to the way that Paul is talking about the family of God is how should, how should God's family care for one another? Just in a really basic sense. What's he saying here? What are like some of the structural things about the way that the family of God should care for one another? And the first one is this. It's right away in verse 1. Like a biological family should care for one another. Look at what he says in verse 1. Don't review, rebuke an older man, exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. And younger women as sisters with all purity. Look, if you're maybe a younger person, you need to talk to an older person, maybe it's going to be a tough conversation in the church. How do you approach that? The way that you would approach your parents with respect and deference that they deserve. Right? This is what Paul's saying. And such a helpful rudder that can steer our ship as we relate to one another, right? If you're single, okay, how do you relate to the other singles in the church? Like brothers and sisters. And you might be saying to yourself, uh, and don't get me wrong, like Tinder got nothing on us, you know? Like there's, this, is, this is the place, you know? If you're going to find your spouse, you find them here. But hey, as the great poet Beyonce says, if you like it, then you need to put a ring on it, okay? So um, until then, brothers and sisters, Okay? Fathers and mothers, sons and daughters. This is the, the way that Paul's encouraging Timothy to relate to the people in the family of God. And the next way is this in verse 4. In a godly, or in, in this question of how should God's family care for one another. The next one he hears in verse 4 that we see in support widows are genuine in need, but if any widow or, or has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness toward their own family first godliness. What does that mean? Well, it means like God, to which you might say, cool, Adam, we get that, and we know you didn't go to seminary. But here's what I'm trying to say. Godliness. This is critical to our foundation here. Because, look, biological families, 
the family of God and the church, they're to care for one another like God does. Look, Paul says in several other of his letters that Christ is the head of the church. So how is this family supposed to act? The way that its head has treated us. We're patterned after Jesus. Godliness. We're supposed to be godly, like him. And look, how life-giving is this for us? Because maybe in that last point, if you're talk we're talking about biological families, you might be saying to yourself, look, that's great, but my family was horrific growing up. Like, I don't look at my family and say, I need to love people in the church like that, the needy in the church like that. And that's why when we come to this word godliness, it gives us so much life because this is Paul saying, pattern yourselves as a family after the way that Jesus treated us. And look, maybe you, you know, maybe your parents weren't around, they weren't engaged, maybe they were passive, maybe we had brothers and sisters or other family members that just spoke words of just brutality and hate to you. And you need healing from the experience of your family growing up. And look, here's what I want to say to you. That Jesus weeps over that and, and that he invites you and wants to wrap his arms around you and give you the gift of a family that's patterned after him. That's patterned after the way that he is. And let's look at the way that he is here in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. This is what uh, Paul says. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even to death on a cross. This is what our Lord is like. And when Paul encourages some of the folks in uh, his letter to Timothy to exercise godliness towards their parents and grandparents, he's saying, pattern yourselves after the way that our Lord treated us. Like we, I know that Paul is saying that many of us come from brokenness as it relates to families. But we have a wonderful example who loved and served us that we are to pattern ourselves after. <clears throat> now, um, so how does a family care for one another? How should God's family care for one another? Well, like a biological family should, brothers and sisters, in a godly way, patterned after the head of this family. Patterned after the head of this family. And now, look, when we, but when we compare ourselves to Jesus, I mean, shoot, even when we go home for Christmas, we can't even help ourselves oftentimes but having old arguments come up with family and bickering. And we know that we fall short when it comes to the way that God is calling us to treat each other as family. Even here at church, like we have conflicts. We have arguments with one another. We have difficulty between one another. And we know that we fall short in this. And so kind of the next thing that we need to look at is, why is it so hard for us to care for one another? the way that Paul describes in this passage. Why is it so hard for us to care for one another? The first is this that we see in verse 8. We're focused on our own needs. Look at what Paul says in verse 8. This is the person um, that he is reprimanding who doesn't care for his family. But if anyone does not provide for his own family, he's talking about a biological family here. If anyone does not provide, he is denied the faith. This is so counter to who God is, not providing for your biological family. 
It's so counter to who God is that Paul's like, they do that, they've denied the faith. Because that is not who God is. That is not who God is. And look, you know, this, is, this was happening in this community. People were doing this. And you might say to yourself, you know, I, I, but Adam, I haven't, there's nobody destitute in my family, and if there was, I would take care of them. Like, I'm not necessarily going to do that. Maybe you have, in which case you need to hear this. But, you know, maybe you might think to yourself, I don't, how does this apply to me? Well, again, let's look at the principle here. What is the principle that Paul is trying to communicate? What is your role in your family? You might say, oh, I'm 19. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to, like, take care of my mom or my dad. They're 50. They're doing just fine. But what, what is your role in your family? I mean, God's talking about provision here. He cares about the way that families take care of one another. How do we take that principle and apply it to our own lives? Maybe if you're younger and you have a brother and sister who's just in emotional pain. And God, because he's caring, wants to bring provision to them through you. Maybe you have a roommate, and maybe they're in between jobs. Maybe it could be all going through any, all kinds of suffering. What ways is God impressing on us to bring provision to them? Because he's a providing God. What ways are we to align ourselves with what he wants for us in the people in our lives that have need? What is the Spirit of God bringing forward to us even now? Um, the next one that we see is in verses 6 and 13. Verse 6 here. Um, so the first one was uh, we are focused on our own needs instead of providing for others' needs. We're focused on our own needs. The second one is we are self-indulgent with what we have. So this is the, uh, this is the widow who is kind of disqualified because she's not acting the way that a family member in God's family should act. She, is self in, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. And then the next one here in verse 13, um, they're idle and busybodies. They're, and that's basically this idea of they're self-indulgent with what they have. The things that are in their life, they're not using it to serve and care for people. They're indulging in it themselves. And look, this example is focused on the widows. But if we were to turn, for example, to 2 Thessalonians 3, especially with this idleness and busybodiness, Paul actually says the same thing except to the whole church. right? So we know that this applies to us, this self-indulgence. Now, um, it calls us to ask ourselves, how are, we, how are we stewarding the things God has given us? How are we... I mean, God gives us so many things. Money, resources, um, time, skills, talent... How are you stewarding those things in your life? Are we indulging in them? And look, God, like we heard actually from one of Caleb's sermons the other week, God loves it when we delight in the things that he has made. God created Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath, as it says in the Gospels. But look, are, are, we, are we delighting in serving and caring for one another, sharing what we have in the way that Jesus delighted to do that for us? Do we take joy in that, or is it a burden? Maybe, like, let's just put the financial and physical resources aside. Maybe it's your time. Maybe you go to work, and then everything after that, every minute, is just yours. But how do we delight in using that to indulge others with what we have, the way that Jesus delighted to do that for us? So, we're self-indulgent with the things that we have. This is why it's so hard for people 
to care for one of these. There's just a couple of the things that the text brings up, right? There could probably be a lot more, but we're focused on our own needs, that family that's not providing for those in needs. We're focused on our own needs, and we're self-indulgent with what we have. Okay? These are the two things that this text brings up. Now, here's the thing. We look at, um, we, look, we ask that question foundationally. How does the family of God care for one another? And then we ask, well, it's hard. Why is it hard? Some of these things come up in our lives. And look, if, if, some, if God has brought some of those things to the forefront of your heart right now, the first thing I encourage you to do is to confess that to Jesus and then ask him to give you that joy that he has. For the joy that was set before him, the author of Hebrews says, he endured the cross. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, it says in the Gospels. This is the heart of Jesus. And if whatever it is that the Lord pressed upon your spirit, confess that to God and ask him to bring that joy in as you serve. So we delight in the way that we give and serve and care for others. Now, as we kind of wrestle with that difficulty in the way that our hearts fight against giving what we have, we then need to, and, as, and we invite Jesus in to change us, we then transition to, okay, Lord, I've confessed this to you. What do we, what, um, what does a caring family of God actually do now? Like, how do I go forth and act? What does a caring family of God actually do? And the first thing that really this whole passage is about, we see in verse 3, support widows who are genuinely in need. We see it again at the end of the chapter. He kind of closes it by saying the same thing. So that the church can help widows in genuine need. What is this? It's supporting the needy. This is supporting the needy. Biological families, church families are to support the needy. This is the first thing that a godly family that cares for one another does. And it's really what this whole passage is about. And look, let me, <clears throat> let me just say something before I go on. Let me say something about God and about widows. God, the Bible talks about God as what's called immutable. It's this great theological word. It means God is unchanging. God is the same yesterday as he is today and as he will be tomorrow. He's immutable. He does not change. And look, we see this across the thousand plus years that the entirety of the Bible was written. We see God caring for the widows and the destitute and the needy from beginning to end. It's there the entire time. This is the heart of who God is for the oppressed, whether it's Deuteronomy 27, 19, where God says, the one who denies justice to the fatherless, to the resident alien, to the widow, is accursed. Years later, Isaiah says in chapter 1, verse 17, learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the, the rights of the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Psalm 68, God says in verses 5 and 6, Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. He settles the solitary in a home, the psalmist says. Years later, again, we come to Acts, I think it's 6, where the leaders of the church are discussing and putting systems into place to care for the needy like the widows. In Acts 6, James, the brother of Jesus, later says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is to look after widows and orphans. And then we come to 1 Timothy chapter 5 where Paul lays out 
for Timothy how to take care of the widows with wisdom. From the beginning of God's revelation to man, he has cared about the poor and oppressed. It's always been that way, and it's always going to be that way. This is the heart of God. This is how he is, and he calls us into that with him. Why? Because that's who he is. God is that way. And again, Jesus is the head of this family, and we pattern ourselves after him. We support those in need. The next one that we see is in verse 10. Uh, in what does a caring family of God actually do? In verse 10, uh, we see show hospitality. And look, I picked this one. This is not an exhaustive list per se, but I picked this one because it kind of underlies the whole thing in a lot of ways. This is the good widow that is, uh, that's qualified and faithful. She shows hospitality, Paul says. She shows uh, <clears throat> hospitality. Um, I'm really thankful to uh, my parents for this. Because growing up, I, uh, you know, as time went on, my parents started just inviting people into our house. And so, for, you know, whether it was family, friends, or people that neither of us really knew, like my parents started inviting people into our house from a young age, and that just kind of happened more and more as we got older. So all of a sudden, me and my brothers, like somebody needed a place to stay, we started saying, hey, you know, my, my parents like having people over, <laughs> you could just stay at our house. We started saying that to all kinds of people. <clears throat> I mean, even if you would have gone to my parents' house last week, if you'd have gone there last week in Northern California, they had um, a junior college student in there living in my brother's old room. They had, both of my parents were there. Um, my youngest brother, who was coming home from college, was also there. Um, there was an old family friend who had just gotten a recent sales job, was trying to save for a car, trying to save for a new rental place, you know, different needs that they all have. He was staying there. There were three people who were starting um, kind of like a company startup. And if you know anything about startups, most of the time you're like poorer than a stray dog, okay? And um, they were, so those three people were there. I mean, if I would have come back home, you know, last week and I said, hey, mom, I'm coming home, she would have been like, that's great, here's the futon, <laughs> you know? Because they were hosting all these different people. The, the, what the household for them meant, what their family meant began to expand because of God's work in their lives. And I was so thankful to them for that. And look, it was hard for them. People stole from them. People over the years stole thousands of dollars from them. People were weird and rude, right? But people also have been saved in that house because of that work, right? It's going to be difficult, but this is what God called them into. And out of the overflow of their heart, they did this. And they, I mean, it was hospitality, love to both friends and family of God and to strangers. And so we need to ask ourselves, what opportunities has God given you to be hospitable? The way that the widow is in 1 Timothy 5. What are the ways, the things that God has given you? Maybe it's, again, this is the whole principle thing, right? How do we apply this to our lives? Maybe you don't own a home. But maybe you have neighbors and you've never had them over for dinner. And remember, this is the heart of God. This is godliness. This is hospitality. This is how we reflect God. Maybe you need to have them over for dinner. Maybe you do have a house and you have a room and God is calling to evaluate the way in which we're using that. I mean, maybe not. But bottom line is, what, in what ways is God calling you to be hospitable the way that this faithful widow is? Uh, the next one is this, and this is just kind of a catch-all. Devoted herself to every good work. 
Now, um, <clears throat> look, the family of God looks for ways to serve one another all the time. They look for ways to care and serve for one another at all points and in all places, right? Um, so, I mean, look at the grandchildren or children in verse 4, where Paul's like, hey, the grandchildren or children, they are to, like, take that person who's needy into their home, if it's their parents or their grandparents, because that honors God. And that's thankfulness. I mean, that's the person, that child or grandchild is looking at their parents or their grandparents and being like, hey, you're the real MVP. And they're inviting them into their home. It's thankfulness. Okay? It's a thankfulness. This is a good work. Um, what about the washing the feet of the saints, even in the same verse? And what does this mean, wash the saints' feet? Like, well, Adam, we don't live in antiquity anymore, and we don't wash people's feet, but what's the principle here? I mean, look, as we all probably have heard of, maybe if you've been in church for any length of time, people washed feet back then, because they mostly had sandals, and they got really gnarly, and they come into the home, and they don't want to track that in everywhere, and the washing of the feet was mostly relegated to the lowest rungs of society. It was a dirty and humbling job, and the faithful widow does that. So what's the principle here? That we exercise humility and service towards the family of God, towards those in need. And what way can you do that? to your biological family, to your family of God, to the stranger, in the way that the faithful widow did. Washing the feet of the saints. <clears throat> so what does the family of God actually do? What does the caring family of God actually do? It supports those in need. Why? Because that's the heart of God himself. This is the way that he is. And this family patterns itself after him. We support those in need like the widow. We're hospitable like the faithful widow. And we devote ourselves to good works in all things, looking for opportunity. We look for opportunity to serve the people of God the way that our Lord did. And so, in conclusion, where does this, where does this leave us with our original question? How should a family, how should a family care for one another? When we talk about this as us. How is a family supposed to care for one another? The answer for those who follow Jesus is in the way that he cared for us. That's the answer to those who follow Jesus. We, uh, like a biological family, it should, in a godly way, the way that God is, that's who we look to as our example, the way that he treated us. We repent of that sin and temptation to turn inward and self-indulge and serve ourselves instead of the needy and the family of God. We confess that to him and ask him to change us so that we can move forth in supporting the needy, so we can move forth in hospitality and good works. This is what the family patterned after our Lord Jesus does. So, when we take communion, we remember what our Lord did. Not just that he served, but that he sacrificed. We remember the great cost that it was for him to go to the cross. We remember the great cost that it was for him to go to the cross. And we remember him when we take communion. We remember his work in that. Let's pray. God, how wonderful you are in the way that you care for the destitute God, who are you that you care so deeply for the widow and for the fatherless 
God, that you, that you give us instruction and wisdom in how to care for them. That you show us that it matters so much to you. And it has mattered to you for thousands of years. God, lead us in the example of the faithful widow. God, help us to be a family that cares for one another the way that you cared for us. God, help us to turn from just disobedient hearts that challenge you on this. God, melt them and lead us in serving the needy and showing hospitality the way that you did, Lord. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.